Okay, so the series this whole spring is the Spring Jewish Holidays. And I scheduled it because this for that title because I looked. This Thursday, today, is Yom HaShoah. So we're going to be focusing on that today. So it's, you know, it's not the most <coughs> serious topic. But next Thursday is Israeli Independence Day. So I thought, you know, Bob Messing is going to give a presentation next week. We'll get the word out about that. <clears throat> And then the next week, well, the next week I'm going to be away, but, <clears throat> excuse me, then we're coming up on Shavuot, Lagba Omer and Shavuot. So they all fell, things all fell on Thursday, so I thought we'd get to focus on each of those days as we went through the calendar. So today is Yom HaShoah, which is Holocaust Remembrance Day. And tonight we're going to have our ritual, communal, community-wide observance of Yom HaShoah here at 6.30 uh, so that's tonight. So we're not going to be doing a ritual now. Um, I actually thought in this class, one of the questions I had for myself is, how did Yom HaShoah, how was it created? What's its history? Why is it on this day? And when I started reading, fortunately, this fine book by Rabbi Irving Greenberg, Yitz Greenberg, called The Jewish Way, Living the Holidays. He wrote it in 1988. It's a brilliant book. Um, and unlike, and he has a whole big chapter on the new, the new observances in the Jewish calendar, Yom HaShoah and Israeli Independence Day, Yom HaTzma'ut. So I had a very illuminating time reading him, and this is going to be my source material for today. Um, but I think before we go into that historical sort of aspect, I wanted to share his introduction to his chapter with you. There's no way not to be somber about it, but he's so clear. And while I was reading that, I thought, well, I need to be reminded of this, because any remembrance you know, the Holocaust becomes a word. Um, you. You're welcome. And it's, uh, I think the reason to have a day set aside to remember something is so that we remember. Um, and so this is Yitz Greenberg on, um, as, to open up. He calls it the shattered paradigm. And the key here that I wanted to read to you for me um, is the second paragraph on 314, where he says, the Holocaust was more than an attack on the Jewish people, more than a, de a decision to kill every last Jew in the world for the crime of being. Nazi mass murder was a systematic assault on the values that the Jewish people and the Jewish way represent. It is one thing to forcibly deport millions of people to their deaths. It is another thing to offer an exemption card to a man supporting a wife and a mother with only one exemption to force him to send one away. It is one thing to murder millions of people in killing camps. It is another thing to number them, degrade them, and turn them into Muslim men, that is, an anonymous mass of non-men who march and labor in silence, the divine spark dead within them, already too empty to really suffer. One hesitates to call them living. One hesitates 
to call their death, death, in the face of which they have no fear, as they are too tired to understand. Their faceless presence is emaciated with head dropped and shoulders curved, on whose face and in whose eyes not a trace of thought is to be seen. That's Primo Levi, Survival in Auschwitz. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is to get to the next couple of paragraphs. It is one thing to gas people. It is another thing to burn the body and use the ashes to strew the roads for traction in winter, for fertilizer and for soap. At that point, a theological statement is being made. A human being, or at least a Jewish human being, is not an image of God, but a thing. Not free, but owned. Not unique, but numbered. A Jewish life belongs to Germans to be used up and then converted into usable end products. Nazism had a profoundly theological dimension. One should not be distracted from that truth by the fact that it was a theology of the devil. Uri Tal and other scholars have documented the search for wholeness, for secularized salvation that supplied enormous dynamic to the Nazi movement. The Führer is at once the Messiah and the God of the movement, the source of the standard of good and evil. Hitler's dream of stopping at nothing to realize perfection reflected a yearning for human absolutes. The dream could not be realized without totally eliminating the Jewish people, who represent the presence of a God who is not controllable. As Hitler complained, the Jews were a source of conscience and judgment that he felt was irksomely restrictive and repressive of the natural pagan man. Hi, Carol. Okay, pass that. So I'll read that sentence again. Um, Hitler's dream of stopping at nothing to make, to realize perfection reflected a yearning for human absolutes. Oh, that's the other line. As Hitler complained, the Jews were a source of conscience and judgment that he felt was irksomely restrictive and repressive of the natural pagan man. Jewish existence was a statement of not yet to all messianic pretensions. As long as one Jew remains alive, there can be no triumph, no monopoly for anyone's absolute claim. The Jews had to be totally annihilated. Their witness must not live on. So began the most total assault of death on the people who teach that life will triumph. The process was deaths for death's sake, death defying the rational needs of wartime productivity, of economic profit, of military strategic priorities. Starvation, disease, terror, deportation, airless crouching boxes, chemical poisoning, medical experiments, freezing, burning, beating, whipping, burial alive, bayoneting, smashing heads, shooting squads, gassing, the kingdom of night, the triumph of death. As the attack developed, Jewish rabbis, scholars, and teachers were special targets, mercilessly hunted down. 30% of world Jewry alive in 1939 was dead by 1945. 80% of the rabbis and full-time students of Talmud were gone by then. Jewish holy days were violated with specially scheduled roundups. The Warsaw Ghetto was enclosed on Yom Kippur, 1940. Deportations to Warsaw, to, from Warsaw to Drabinka at the rate of 6,000 a day were begun on Tisha B'Av. 
1942. The final destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto was scheduled for Passover, 1943. Joseph Mengele scheduled special selections for Yom Kippur in Auschwitz, Auschwitz so that he would decide who shall live and who shall die. In yet other camps, special food, rich soup and soft noodles was served on the Day of Atonement to mock that day when even many non-observant Jews fasted. Public prayer was prohibited in Warsaw in 1940. Keeping the Sabbath became impossible because forced labor was required on that day. Kosher slaughter was banned. Education was forbidden. Newspapers were closed. Libraries were confiscated. A food ration of 800 calories per day was established in the ghettos in a climate where people needed 3,000 calories a day. But the amount of food needed to supply the official caloric standard was never delivered. Every mother who did not abandon her children or who fed them knew that whatever she gave them was taken out of her chance to survive. Jews were pressed into service to round up other Jews for transport. The alternative was being killed or being sent themselves. Parents were pitted against children and children against parents for survival. There were special actions against children. Parents could let their children go or go with them. Sometimes the targets were old people. Every child who did not abandon a parent on a death march or in the camps knew that the weight of the parent was dragging the child down to death. An early Nazi analysis, I'm just going to read to the bottom of this page. An early Nazi analysis concluded that by working prisoners to death in an average of nine months, the profit per prisoner, keeping clothing and food costs infinitesimally low, was 1,431 marks, plus income from an effective utilization of the corpse, gold from the teeth, clothes, valuables, money less the cost of burning the corpse, which added 200 marks additional profit, to which must be added income from utilization of the bones and the ashes. Shooting squads were used to kill more than 1.5 million Jews. Then this method was deemed too costly, too slow, and too problematic. The search for cheaper, swifter methods of killing led to use of Zyklon B gas and insecticide in the Auschwitz gas chambers. Zyklon B causes death by internal asphyxiation, with damage to the centers of respiration, accompanied by feelings of fear, dizziness, and vomiting. In the summer of 1944, the amount of gas used in each chamber load was half. This cut the price of killing in half to less than one half cent per person, but doubled the time of agonizing death. Um, so I'm going to stop there. Hi. It's Yom HaShoah. I'm going to stand sometimes. Good. Good. The reason I wanted to share that with you was because it, 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 I, can, I can forget in, in sort of um, uh, I can forget this stuff. Um, and reading it, I realized I have to remember this stuff um, to understand what genocide is, what the Nazi evil was, what, how, you know, I'm not going to have adequate words. That's why I just wanted to read descriptions. Do you want to say anything, Carol? Knowledge of Judaism, 
knowledge. That's what I was noticing. Um, so you have to dig deep for that. Yeah. You don't just know that from talking to some Jews. Right. In other words, Hitler's master race and the place of the Jews in it had a theological component. I think it's so important that he said that it's not a religious theology, it was a secular theology, but it was theology of messianic perfection, that the Aryan race. And the Jews, because of their... The, one of the things that Yitz wants... Yitz, one of Yitz Greenberg's themes in all this is, how, is that, that uh, the Jews' covenant with God, which Christianity said was... Early Christianity then, as it broke from Judaism, determined was no longer valid. Yet the Jews persist. And so you have to come to terms somehow if you're the, if you're, if you're the Christian empire or if then later you're a secularized version of anti-Semitism like Nazism. The Jews' presence is a witness to um, a, a God of conscience, to conscience in some amazing way. And uh, so that we're not just another victim, but we are, as it were, the Jewish problem. Right? Not just a victim, but actually the, actually the problem, the theological problem that they're facing, that they're trying to resolve, uh, that the Nazism finally resolves by trying to eliminate the Jews. Because it's not time yet. That's what he said, right? It's right. We Jews are here to bear witness that it's not time for, for anyone who, for, for a Christian vision of messianic, yeah? I heard, no, what I what did heard you hear? was, maybe I, Mommy, I heard it wrong. In. No, it, but that it's not time yet to have that messianic view. We have to stay in control. I, I don't know what I'm adding here. We have to yeah. stay in control for however much longer because it's not time yet to hold on to that messianic view and work towards it. I think what, what uh, Yitz Greenberg is saying is that, in fact, the messianic view of a perfected world was precisely exactly. what Hitler was pursuing. And uh, that the presence, the very presence of the Jews and their covenant with God and what they represent, which is the place of conscience right. and morality in human affairs as opposed to the place of the Superman, um, uh, uh, was had to be eliminated in order for that perfection to be manifest. Yeah. Then that makes me totally confused about his vision of Christianity and of Christ as being the... No, he wasn't God. a Christian. Was, Hitler wasn't I mean, a Christian. No, but I mean, his view of, of that, wouldn't that just be just as bad? That, that people believe in Christ, really? That, uh, uh, yes and no. Because I mean, he was... Yes and no, because he was the inheritor of Christendom, of European Christianity which had an I look, this ideology is not consistent. Yeah, very... You, oh, no, no. Like you have to turn yourself in, you have to twist yourself into knots to justify exterminating other human beings. Um, but the ground had been primed for centuries that the Jews were the problem. Right. And so all you need is a victim, is a scapegoat. So maybe, maybe those who believed in Christ would be next after he took care of that problem. Probably. Oh, they were, they were part of Catholics also. Oh, yes. He went after the clergy. He went after clergy. He went after anyone who was deviant in his mind. Right? We know that he went, he, his first experiments in Berlin uh, were killing places for the um, mentally disabled. That's who he wanted to get rid of first. And I think it was probably strategic 
because he knew that that was a semi-acceptable um, thing to do. And uh, that was where, those were the first killing experiments. Which one, please? The, the retarded. Oh, okay. okay. And, um, uh, and uh, uh, then he turns attention to all the other deviants in society. Certainly, homosexuals were rounded up and exterminated. Gypsies. Gypsies. But I'm talking, g- yeah. the gypsies too. But the gypsies also had a history of being considered to be outliers, outsiders. So uh, it, was, it was an ideology of seeking perfection in the most disturbingly warped way possible. Yeah. Um, I'm a little, um, could, could you elaborate on what you, how you're defining messianic view? I'm using his language. Okay. And what he means is that you want to perfect the world, that uh, there's a vision of a perfected world. And in some Christian messianic visions, it's when everyone accepts Christ. Right. In the warped and secularized Nazi vision, it's when everyone's eliminated except the master race. That would be what Yitz is calling a messianic vision. And, and they are the Whereas, master race because... Because they said so. Because they, they decided they were. Because they decided they were. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who decides who lives and who dies? Well, I guess what, what I'm um, confused about is where the theology came well, into this. Well, uh, the theology is the theology of the master race. And he's using the word theology as, a, as it were theology because there's no God right. in Nazi ideology. But he's claiming it's a, theo- it's a de facto theology because it claims to understand ultimate purposes and meanings. So he's using the word theology there. Does that make sense? So, so it's not theology as it relates to... The, to God. So to, Hitler didn't talk about God. No. No. No, no. Was this, did this have anything to do with Nietzsche and that super man? Yes. Yes. Uh, big admirer of Nietzsche. Yeah. And the idea that... That, that his philosophy... Power. Super, yeah, the superman. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted... That there's a natural pagan... See, 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 Nazism is a revolt against Christianity, uh, as, no question about it. But it, it, and I'm sure had it prevailed, it would have suppressed organized religion as heavily as uh, the communist uh, Russia did. Um, but the Jews have always been the uh, canary in the coal mine, right? Um, they're always the one to knock off first when in, in Europe, European um, anti-Semitism. Um, Isn't that Aryan, the Aryan race, doesn't that go back, like you, you were saying, to pagan theology? Yes, like so... Stuff in Wagner's... Let me, let me talk about that, that a little stuff. bit. Yeah, so... That's where it does come from this is, this is worth talking about, and I sort of know about it, so take some of this with a grain of salt, but I think I can speak intelligently about this. European, Europe was Christian. That was its identity in the Middle Ages, right? It was Christendom. Even after the Reformation, when the Lutherans and uh, the Calvinists started breaking away from the Catholic Church, the identity was deeply, was deeply Christian. And it was organized around kingdoms, right? But then births in the 18th century this idea of nationalism and national identity. Frenchness. Germanness, Italianness, you know, Polish, Russian. These are 
new constructs of communal, like collective identity. Right? Remember, think about the map. When did Italy become Italy? They were like, it was in, until the 1890s, right? Until then, it was lots of old duchies and city states and what? Remember what we learned in, in Berlin? I forget his name. That, oh, Torsten. Well, Torsten told us that Deutschland over alles doesn't mean a German state over all the others. It meant a united Germany of all the little principalities mm-hmm. right, coming remember, together. Right, remember Bismarck was just That's in Prussia. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Bismarck right. Bismarck was just in Prussia and uh, there were all these German uh, uh, kingdoms, duchies, uh, principalities. principalities, right? And so this idea emerges, it's a new idea that national identities coalesce around languages. German language, German speakers become a national identity. To become a national identity, you have to create a national mythology. So the German thinkers of the 19th century reach back to Teutonic mythology, to the God, the, to, to uh, the Valkyrie, and the, you know, Wagner was creating a national mythology. Created, right? Those were created. The French Revolution, Frenchness, and its forebears, and Charlemagne, and uh, it's all. So, as we've taught about Zionism here, Zionism is also a late 19th century invention. That doesn't mean it's not real to to the people who adopt it, because we're social beings. But it's not immutable, it's not unchangeable, there's nothing eternal about it. So that's why when I talk to people who say, well, the Palestinians are not a national group, we're a national group, I say, I'm sorry, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You know, all nations are fabrications, and you either take, take it or leave it. I'm looking forward, personally, to a post-national humanity, right? So is John. Right, right. right. And we don't know, as nation states come and go, as, as borders start to dissolve, as the Middle East falls apart, we don't know what the new organizing principles are going to be. There's a lot of science fiction written about it. Europe is trying it, but it's not working. Europe is doing a huge experiment. Time will tell. Time will tell. It's under attack. I remember reading a cyber, what's it called? A science fiction, what's that genre called? Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk science fiction, where the world had reorganized itself based on corporations. Right. Yeah. And you're right. It was. It was. He, she, it. Marge Percy. Yeah, Marge Percy. He, she, it. Right. It's like the point is, national identity is a relatively recent creation in human history. It's and so, it's based on a mythology. So Germanness, is a creation. I mean, look at Hitler. He wasn't blonde. He was from Austria. He was. You know. It's like it doesn't matter. Um. Uh of this idea of a, of a master race called uh, Aryans. And so a mythology grew up. Now remember, again, and this is, this is way too simplistic, but after World War I, Germany was a completely devastated, crushed, utterly demoralized, economically degraded country. And along comes someone who's going to reach into Germanness and say, no, we are the best. 
and we are going to, we are the master race, right? That's where that stuff comes from. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. It's happening today. It happens all the time. It's happening now here. It happens all the time. It happens all the time, which is why we have to, why, it's, why I wanted to read this, right? For myself, I got to remember this. Um, that uh, now, in terms of those invented identities, there's another thing that comes along with national identities, which is a concept called race. That is not an ancient concept. Race is also a humanly constructed idea. And, and so the idea of racial superiority, even though there are, it's not like it came out of nothing. There's plenty of stuff in the ancient world. But it wasn't this idea that there's something called race when in fact, genetically, when you look at us, everybody's a mixture of something. There is no dividing line on race, not really. You know, that's why on these, I think these shows right now that Henry Louis Gates started where people get their DNA tested and go back and learn that they're 52% European and only 36% African, but they're African-American. That's their race. Mm -hmm. What makes it their race? It's a social construction, right? right? So we have to remember that. <coughs> and we live and die by it right now, just like we live and die by national identities. Now, it's not forever. And it's one of the things that we have to remember. As, so Hitler comes along and utilizes both racial theory and nationalist mythologies that are how the modern world organizes itself and creates a myth of a master race and, uh, or consolidates a myth of a master race. And in this consolidation, if there's a master race, the Jews are the prime example of the, what used to be called the Antichrist. So now they're the anti. Whatever, whatever it was inherited from Christianity gets repurposed to scapegoat the Jews in a new way in Europe. And um, so, you know, you can't create this kind of hatred out of nothing. There were centuries of priming it. Uh, um, yes, Carol? It just took it on so quickly. That's what's striking me now. The amount of time it took for Hitler to dream it up and, and, and the country to adopt it enough to want to kill millions of people. So let's talk about it. He did it very, we know that he, we know from historical study how cagey he was in rolling out his plans, how subtle he was. Um, the rabbis have a lot to say about how Pharaoh managed to enslave the Jews in their commentaries on the Exodus story. Mm -hmm. And it says in Torah that he um, treated them with bifarech, the Hebrew word farech, which basically means ruthless in its, in its uh, literal translation. He was ruthless, bifarech. He was, that's what the word means. But the rabbis say, no, no, no. He did it bifarech, which means with gentle words. It's so brilliant. How did he get them into the land of Goshen? How did he get them to start? How, did, how do you do that? The same, well, the Nazis are a, um, the, the Nazi regime is a, uh, a, a, like a, um, a case study in how you pass a law that just says, no, they can't go to medical school. 
And you say, okay, well, we can't go to medical school. Mm-hmm. And you pass a law that says now you have to, uh, oh, you have to wear a Jewish star. Well, at least, and, and it's an amazing mm-hmm. and very well-documented history of how they, it, how they kept turning up the heat in a way that you didn't notice how hot you were until it was too late. How you cook a frog. frog. That that famous analogy about you put a frog in a frying pan if you turn the heat up slowly enough. Now, I don't know if this is actually true, but I think Gregory Bateson said it. Uh, And eventually, you can boil the frog without it ever knowing it was being cooked. Ellen? Um, I saw on Facebook yesterday a reprint of a short article from 1932 from the Times um, commenting that well, yes, Hitler's saying all these anti-Semitic stuff, but it's probably just so that he can get elected and he's not going to right. do anything about it. Right, he's just saying it. Mm-hmm. That's right, just saying it. Now, uh, I don't want to... Again, this was such um, unfettered evil that I, I'm going to be very cautious in analogies to, say, our current election cycle. However... <laughs> However, however, we have to go there because we know that in 1933, Hitler won with 34% of the vote. It was, there were multiple parties running. His party, he'd been in jail a few years earlier. He'd made this comeback and the Nazi party, it was the midst of the depression and the Nazi party claimed 40, 34% of the vote and all of a sudden he was the prime minister and people thought he was a joke. People thought he was a clown. You know, and he immediately arrested all his um, uh, political opponents. Immediately, that's how he claimed, claimed power. So, history is not a foregone conclusion, right? That didn't have to happen any more than nine eleven had to happen, mm-hmm. right? Any more than any of the things that wind up defining our eras have to happen. And I think it's one of the things that yeah, again on Holocaust Memorial Day, one of the things that we want to keep in our consciousness. Um, there's a lot that's out of our control, but it doesn't have to happen. It may happen, but we don't have to be resigned to it, if you understand what I mean. In hindsight, you realize that didn't have to go that way. But in a way, does it have to happen because <clears throat> does Hitler create this on the people, or do the people create Hitler? Was the receptivity there, and if it wasn't him, it would you know, did it have to happen? That's a great question, huh? <laughs> I mean, I obviously, obviously, the uh, leaders arise who reflect the moment that they're in, and then if it happens to be the particularly right, either inspiring leader, uh, inspiring positive leader, or the particularly evil. right, e- truly evil, psychopathic leader, yeah. I agree with that. I agree that, that uh, wholeheartedly that um, Hitler wasn't the problem, it was the people. Just like Trump isn't the problem, I'm amazed at the, at the, at the masses that yeah. gather around him. There's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a certain uh, a evil within um, um, uh, mobs. Mobs, right. Mobs. right. We're dealing with the power of human... The mob mentality. We are social creatures and we're defined by our circumstance in that way. And that's why I don't see it as a chicken or egg. I see it as a simultaneous right. sort of, and this person happens to be the... The match. The match, yeah. It lights, yeah. It, lights yeah. it up. Yeah. But, but, but it, the kindling was there. It's all, the, the thing is, in Jewish teaching, the kindling's always there. 
um, uh, because Judaism tra- historically, traditionally, has a, I wouldn't say jaundiced, a realistic view of human nature, which is that one of the purposes of society is to keep a lid on it, on the, neg- on the, on the, on the tinder that's always willing to, that's part of us. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, there's this saying in Rashi, it says, when, when, uh, when the destroyer is released abroad on the land, innocent and guilty suffer alike. So a big part of our job is to actually keep a lid on those impulses in human in society, ourselves. in ourselves and society. And, um, and yet, you know, when we think of the 60s um, and the free love and all the, all the excesses of that, we're living in a constant tension mm-hmm. between allowing human, humanity to express itself yes. and figuring out how and to keep us from expressing the worst in us. Right. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I'm noticing certain, um, certain patterns. One is that maybe where we are in evolution in humanity is adolescent and rebellious, and we need to assert ourselves. That's the nationalism, and, you know, this is the identity of, of who we are. Well, remember, nationalism was over... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, but what you were talking about in terms of being German, in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. that stuff. And then you have, what I'm seeing is you have a, a person who comes along who is a good father, whether it's good or not, mm-hmm. a father who will take care of the situation. Mm-hmm. The situation is terrible. Right. And I need somebody to fix it. Right. And so I think that's a little bit of that is playing itself right now. I think you're right. Yeah. And, um, and so psychologically, where we are is there because we haven't we haven't evolved past it. And the other thing is, I don't know how to exactly say this. The lack of some kind of spiritual practice in people's lives, and it doesn't have to be a religious practice, but a spiritual practice that is in some kind of relationship to the mystery. Mm-hmm. seems to be an important part of not falling apart to succumb to, to that mm-hmm. which is going on around us, mm-hmm. which we're calling evil. Mm-hmm. So there's so much at play here. So much, so much. That's why I don't want to make it too schematic. But it's still important to, to lay out the scheme. And so I wanted to say more about nationalism yeah. because nationalism was also part of the advance of human society. Because prior to the emergence of nationalism, there was no concept of individual rights right. or citizenship. Right. right? Liberty, egality, fraternity, the uh, er, in, in, inalienable rights to have, um, what are inalienable rights? Life, Life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. happiness. Nope. King wants to kill you, you're dead. King wants to send you to war, you're going to war. King wants to take your taxes, takes your taxes. Take your National- wife. Hmm? Take, take your wife. Your wife. Na- or, uh, nationalism, nationalism was actually a radical advance in the understanding of the, of the, of the, the in- rights of individuals. And so we can't forget that. That's, one of, that's the, posit- the idea of citizenship at all, that we're citizens and that therefore the government's by the people and for the people. That's a concept of nationalism and is a step forward from the prior model. Uh, and that's what was great about nationalism. However, we also see the dark side of it, which is 
anything, any ideology can be utilized to turn into an, um, a uh, vehicle for domination. What did you want to say? As inheritors of the American Revolution, we, we don't get the absolute power that monarchs had. And the um, Spinoza and Hobbes and Locke and those guys at the end of the 1600s, beginning of the 1700s, started right. noticing and writing, and the ideas spread and grew. And the alarm that the aristocrats and the kings and princes felt that the people who were their subjects, who had to listen to everything that they said, they weren't kidding when they said the divine right of kings. Mm -hmm. right. And and you know you look at Queen Elizabeth's um, uh, coronation, the the Bishop of Canterbury, Archbishop Canterbury, anoints her with oil the same way that kings since the Bible. Good point. Well, have been that's right. anointed, and. That's one reason that we don't get God as Lord, because it meant that absolute monarch, and why we have to understand that the whole 19th century was a major change for the, from the past 1,800 years. It was an, a, right. such a huge... Right. Another thing that, thank you so much, another thing that we don't understand as Americans generally, unless we've spent a bunch of time in Europe, enough time in Europe, and I've only spent a tiny bit of time there, is that the American national mythology is malleable in terms of where you're from. So, now this is not to deny in any way that America was built on the backs on, on the corpses of Native Americans and on the backs and corpses of Africans, right? That's our original sin. That's, you know, Americanness has to grapple with that. But we can have Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama and Donald Trump from Germany and Bernie's, Bernie's from Poland and Barack Obama's half Kenyan and his ancestry, and they can all be Americans. When you go to Germany, one of the things that we learned is that the Turkish immigrants there who They've are... they for 30 years or more. 40. Their kids have been yes. raised as Germans. They're not German citizens because Germanness, and Germany's grappling with this. I'm not saying they're... They're changing they're, it. They're, they're not ignorant of it, but the, we're, we are so blessed in this country to have the idea that you can become an American and then run for president, Right. That is a unique permutation of nationalism. And it's why so many nations look in our direction. You know, we got it. We, believe it or not, we got it really, really good here. Certainly the Jews do, mm -hmm. right? Because, because of this, because of the limiting ideologies of European nationalisms, which they're trying to overcome now through the European Union, um, Jews had no place to rest their feet. No place because there was no possibility that they would truly become a true German or a true Frenchman. And this is a real problem with European nationalism. Now, Zionism, which was born in... Uh, Zionism faces the same risks uh, in its right-wing manifestations. Uh -huh. Right? Yep. And we, have, we can't ignore that. Right. 
We can't ignore that. Um, that's why, you know, social democratic nationalisms, the, the, that's, that, that's, anyway, you know, it's, that's why when we talk about political philosophies, in a world that organizes itself by nation states, there has to be an enshrinement of the ideals of tolerance and, uh, um, y- 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 and democracy. Because a nationalism is not, necess- not uh, immediately a, a democracy. Look at all the communist regimes that were built up on those national identities. Yeah? Just that I was thinking that the, the, the Jews here in America, or we Jews here in America, not only um, receive that gift that you're talking about, but we have as a, as a community been very hardworking in making sure it stays that way. That, 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 that Jews have taken on, not only Jews, but Jews have certainly taken on the job of making sure that it doesn't go off to the other side. And, I mean, that's been one of our... Right, it's in our, it's in our self-interest, yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in, in our self-interest, and then it happens to be in the self-interest of everybody else. Yes, it's been a good matchup. In, in our point of view. Yeah, yeah, I, want, uh, I have another thought about that that I'll share. Yeah. Um, you, you said that... Um, Jews could never be considered um, in the same light as uh, um, French. Right. But what about, for example, before World War II? I mean, German Jews were... Yes, it was a struggle for the soul of Europe. Um, Prior to the transformation of Europe from a Christian continent into a continent of nation-states, uh, the Jews were the ones who couldn't become part of Christendom unless they converted, right? And then in the 19th century, that gets replaced by these national ideologies. And the Jews are liberated in the, in the, in the rush of, um, of liberal, liberalization that was the French Revolution, that was the German Revolution of 1848, that was, you know... The, the Jews are permitted to enter French society and enter German society. Universities open, professions Universities open, open. professions open slowly and in fits and starts with backtracking and everything. Um, and the Jews embraced this. Most Jews embraced this with, with zeal because this was their ticket into having a decent life, right? It was no fun being Jewish in Europe before that. Uh, and here's what happens. The liberal elements of these national movements embrace the Jews. However, the statist, the fascist, the, the conservative elements, the racist elements, they're never fully absorbed. And so you have the Dreyfus trial yeah. in 1896, where uh, uh, Dre- Captain Dreyfus was like a Jew who was like the ultimate Frenchman. Um, he was a national. He was a military hero. He was, and he gets framed. What did he get framed for? Being a spy. For being a spy. For passing military secrets on to Germans. Or right. Um, some of the German states. Some, some. And this, the Dreyfus trial, was a turning point Total when, sham. when the the Jews realized. Some Jews started to realize, hey, this isn't working. This isn't going to work. The guy who was covering the Dreyfus trial for his Viennese newspaper was Theodore Herzl. Right? And he said, oh. And he was the most, you know, if you know about Herzl, he was the most assimilated. 
uh, he completely assimilated uh, dandy, a dandy, an upper crust, you know, playwright and reporter, you know, um, and that was the turning point for him, but it was the turning point for many people when they realized, mm -hmm. oh shit, you'll pardon my language, mm -hmm. we're not going to be accepted again. Mm -hmm. um, it got worse in, in Austria, Austria, oh, um, and, um, um, but the, the real, the really, the, the tragedy of it were the Jews, the German Jews, who flocked into the army in World War I and gave their lives for the fatherland and wore their medals with pride. And there they are in the 1930s and they cannot, they literally cannot compute what is happening to them because for, they had completely bought into Germanness. And they cannot compute. Um, it's hard not to blame them, you know, how, for not getting it, right? They, they, because Jews had overcompensated by becoming more German than the German or more French than the French in an effort to be accepted. This is part of the Jewish MO historically. We're gonna out, we're gonna out whatever so that we can be safe and accepted. And they were successful. Oh yeah. For a while. Yeah. Yeah, but they also, but I'm not, I'm, in, 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 yeah, they were, to a certain degree. They were intermarrying like crazy. They were, you know, middle and upper middle class, by and large. Yeah. They created the reformed. <laughs> they created the reform movement in order to be an acceptable German, sort of, they called their rabbis ministers, and they called their Organs, synagogues choirs. temples, and they, you know, they did everything to become as more German than the next guy. Same with the famous, all those Russian Jews who said, we're going to become part of Russia, and they joined the Russian army, the Red Army, and they, like, they had their war medals, and then the same, they got sent to the Gulag, and to Siberia. And to, um, it, was, it didn't work. I don't know how did I get started on that. Um, Looking at... Hold on a second, I just want to remember, because I haven't... No, no, you answered my question. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, it, so it, it's so not, it's what I mean is... It's not a straight path. Right. It's 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 really like this, but with the with the wisdom of hindsight, his, historically, you can see where the trends where they where they where they um, uh, maximized where there was high tide for tolerance and where it started to recede, and how racial theory started to impinge on all of this, overtaking the idea of all men are created equal. Um, and, and it's, a con it's, it's really complicated because we're not even talking about socialism, which was a response to nationalism, right? Uh, saying, no, workers of the world unite. That's your true constituency are the people who are making, producing the, the goods of the world and are being oppressed by it. That was a whole other competing ideology of the late 19th century that was competing against nationalism. And, and capitalism. Uh, and capitalism against, Nash, against the Industrial Revolution, because that's all happening at the same time. This is why I'm not a history teacher, but uh, I think I sort of got, you know. The 19th know, century is amazing. It's when it, unbelievable when, when change. The, the, yeah, time could you, of change. Could you, could you say a few words about the Israel model? With, with this history of Jews not able to assimilate, Right now you got Israel, Zionism. Um, I, I assume Jews could assimilate into the... Into the um, um, Israel, but non-Jews, how are they being treated coming in? So Israel is a classic example 
of the need for all nationalist ideologies to also be humanist ideologies, right? Um, there, this, the, the founders of it, there were two competing uh, visions of Zionism in the decades leading up to the state. There was labor Zionism, which was founded in socialism, which gave it its kind of universalist perspective on things. Then that's what, and they, they held sway uh, until the late 70s in Israel. Uh, and that's why the Israeli Declaration of Independence says that our nation ensures the equal treatment of all minorities, right? That's liberal democracy in a national, right? And then there were the revisionist Zionists who were the, who were the ultranationalist Zionists who said, no, what's most important, it's not that they reject minority rights as, some, as an evil, but they're unimportant because these are the hard right-leaning more sort of statist, you call it statist, you know, fascist is its other word, oriented Zionists who say strength is what matters. We're being slaughtered in Europe, and all that matters is that we create a, a, a place where Jews can be safe. And so they, they form the, the kind of uh, spectrum of Zionist ideology that has battled for supremacy in the state of Israel to this day. Um, nations are inherently flawed. Zionism is no more inherently flawed, no more inherently flawed than any other national ideology. Um, but the battle for the soul of Zionism is for the soul of a nationalism that's going to veer towards fascism, which doesn't take morality into consideration as a prerequisite for a state, or towards liberal democracy which insists that in the flawed model of, of nationalism, we still, can ref, we still can enact the values of tolerance and liberalism and democracy uh, by, not, by not killing all the other people around us or suppressing them. And so that's a, short, that's a short answer. Now, Zionism is unique among nationalisms, and this is a fascinating story, in that all the other nationalisms out of which, in Europe, out of which Zionism emerged, were based on the place they live. Yeah. Mm. And you can't underestimate mm. right. how crazy this is and why I think Jews are amazing. Yeah. You know, whatever you think about Jews, we certainly are um, uh, determined and creative. And uh, there was no Jewish homeland. There was no place for Jews. So Jewish nationalism has to, has to reinvent who we are. And so that means collecting ourselves from exile. So in Tel Aviv in the 1930s, there were literally something like 90 languages being spoken or something like that. You know, here was this new city on the sand dunes, the first Jewish city built in 2,000 years, and nobody understands each other because everyone's come from someplace else. Uh, and so Zionism is, a, is astounding in the fact that it galvanized enough Jews to essentially recreate a national identity that didn't exist, in, in, except in, in, it existed in as much scatteredness as, and exile as the rest of us. The story of the revitalization of Hebrew as the spoken language of, of, of the so Jewish cool. people is astonishing. Hebrew was not a spoken language. It, was, it had, hadn't been a spoken language for 2,000 years. The fact that now there are 8 million Hebrew speakers in the world 
is like, it's never happened before. When has the language been revived like that? We don't know. Um, it's so odd how unique the Jews are in, the, in that respect, in the, in the, global, in the global drama, uh, both in terms of our being singled out for, for you know, destruction and derision and the fact that we remake ourselves in ways that are astonishing and creative. It's, it's really, I find it to be amazing. Um, yeah? Did you see the movie um, Son of Saul? The Holocaust movie? No, I didn't want to see it. <laughs> I, I think it's a movie that um, everybody should see. Uh. I, I know, but you know, you kind of have to get over the hump. And, and the reason is because of two things. Number one, um, it, it took me from being a witness to something to a participant in it. Oh my goodness. You, I felt I was there. I was, wow. I was part of the what was going on, part of the experience. And this, because you're so brilliant, the guy, it's about, I don't mean it's about a lot of things, but it, the guy only wants a Jewish burial for a young man who was not killed in the gassing and then was killed later on. And they have the body and he only wants to find a rabbi. This is his only thing, and he can't really take it sort of literally. You have to take it as the DNA in him that still knew that the, the spark of Judaism was so important to reenact this. And he knew everybody was going to die, he was going to die, all of that stuff. But the only thing he could focus on as he was doing his stuff every day, which was horrible, um, was getting this kid buried by a rabbi, traditionally, in, instead of being thrown in a pit or, you know, all, all the things that they did. And to me, that represents what we're, why the Jews are still here. There's something in it, I would call it in our DNA. I well, our cultural DNA. Yeah, whatever it is. But it's a spiritual DNA. All I mean is it's not in our physical DNA. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. Well, but anyone can be a Jew. What, what makes, you know, so... Yes, it, for identity. We're not a race. No, right. Not a race. But anybody who identifies with whatever it is that I'm talking about, this right. spark, is so... It's, it's, it's really quite incredible. And that's why I would... I think we should show the movie. I think we should have a discussion about the movie. I I think it is such a Jewish, it, it gets to the very essence of what Judaism stands for and is Thank you. in the worst context. Mm -hmm. You were going to talk about um, why this day. Yes, I think we can circle around to that now. Oh, good. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, this discussion is very important to me. Uh, context is so important. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good thing to talk about. Um, so, it's 1948. Ha Yom HaShoah is a product of Israel. That's where it was created. Um, and um, a, um, hey, let me get his name. 
Ben Sion Dinur, a labor Zionist who was professor of Jewish history at Hebrew University in 1948. Um, uh, by 19, 1948, and remember, Israel declares independence in 1948. They're a shadow government until they're a government, as it were. Up, uh, by then, the Minister of Education and Culture proposed setting up a memorial commission for the Holocaust, and it was to be located on a mountain next to Mount Herzl, that is next to the national embodiment of Zionist history and values. So when you go to Jerusalem, there's Mount Herzl, where Her Theodor Herzl is buried, and which is the national cemetery of Israel. Uh, lots of prime ministers are buried there, lots of war heroes, lots of... And then the next hill is Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust. They're next to each other in Israel. But this was 1948. He, he, was, he was ahead of the game. So there were three constituencies, essentially, that he lays out, which I think is a really good way of describing it, that he lays out in Israel at the time, sort of trying to figure out what this new country is going to be doing. One are the labor Zionists. They're secular, they're socialist, they're nationalist. Ben-Gurion is their leader, David Ben-Gurion. There are the Holocaust survivors. 150,000 Holocaust survivors came to Israel in the years shortly after the war. Uh, that's a significant part of the population of a country that had 800,000 people, you know, at the time. Um, and then there are the religious survivors of the Holocaust, the religious Jews and the survivors. So these are different constituencies. The Holocaust survivors uh, form kibbutzim, like kibbutz lochamei hagetawot, the kibbutz of the ghetto fighters. Right? These are, so, so he lays out these three, and um, it's clear that... Uh, Nobody's ready to talk about this, right? Um, the survivors were just trying to come start a life. You know, who wants to talk about what just happened, right? So it took quite a number of years. But in nineteen um, uh, in nineteen fifty one, this came to. Um, uh, this came to debate in the Knesset and was debated for some time. And the debate was what kind of day to have and when to have it. The religious faction suggested uh, that we do it on a minor Jewish fast day called the 10th of Tevet, which falls in the winter, because it's already a fast day on the Jewish calendar and we can make it into a fast day in memory of the tragedy of the Holocaust. That didn't go anywhere. Others suggested that beyond Tisha B'Av, the, the destruction of the temple 2,000 years ago. And here, you have to examine <coughs> Jewish history. In the first century, when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple destroyed, as we've talked about many times, this was a paradigm shift in Judaism. It was cataclysmic. And to mark it, the rabbis established fast days to mark the tragedy. And the 9th of Av was the main fast day that was established to um, mark the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the beginning of our exile. And so the idea of rolling it into Tisha B'Av and adding the Holocaust, that wasn't going to fly either because there was something about the Holocaust that was once again so utterly 
paradigm shifting, so utterly cataclysmic that the old one, something, it's like, that wasn't going to do it either. And so then it's proposed by the ghetto fighters that this day take place on April um, 19th, the beginning day of the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt. Because for in early Israel, you'll learn that the first name they gave to Yom HaShoah was Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura. That was its official name. The day of the Holocaust and of the heroism. They were, you know, the, the, the Jews in Israel were not going to celebrate this idea of having gone like sheep to the slaughter. Even though in hindsight it becomes so obvious all the ways that we couldn't have known that no one was being, that that you can't blame the victims for what happened in the Holocaust. It defies explanation. But it was going to be the day of the Holocaust or the catastrophe and the resistance or the heroism. But the day, but the, the Zionist Jews insisted that they didn't want a holiday on a secular calendar date. If we're going to create a memorial, let's do it on the Jewish calendar. Well, the beginning of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was on the eve of Passover. Because that's when the Nazis had planned it. Talk about them knowing the Jewish calendar. Uh, and n- the religious Jews couldn't imagine having the eve of Passover be a Holocaust. Rem- that doesn't make any I- in emotional sense. You know, you're going to supersede Passover with a, fast, a day of, of you know, sorrow and commemorating. So that wasn't going to work. So April... April 19th, it also turns out, was suggested because... Did you listen to this? Um, The Nazis thought... Oh, maybe it wasn't because it was Passover. Hitler's birthday was April 20th. And part of the Warsaw Ghetto mopping up... They were going to mop it up. They figured they'd just do it in one day and in honor of Hitler's birthday on the 20th. (laughs) But the uprising went on for three weeks. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, so they couldn't give Hitler his birthday present that year. <laughs> um, so they're still debating when to do it. So they say, well, how about after Passover on the 27th of Nisan? That's, That's today. today. The 27th of Nisan. Well, it turns out that there is a, a, a tradition, an Orthodox tradition, old that in the month of Nisan, the whole month, is a month when you shouldn't mourn. <laughs> when if somebody dies, you don't give a eulogy. Mm-hmm. You don't do, because it's the month of our liberation. The whole month. Mm-hmm. Just like the month of fall is filled with holidays. The whole, so the Orthodox really rejected that. But, they, so they go back and forth, they debate, and they come up with a compromise that nobody's happy with. on the other hand that means it's a good compromise interestingly which is they set the date of the 27th of ER uh, of of Nisan that's today as Holocaust Remembrance Day and if it falls on a Friday or Saturday they postpone it to Sunday because they don't want it to be interfering with the Shabbat why 27th of Nisan? let me see um, finally, 
that. Okay, I'm going to read this. The Orthodox wanted to push the date as far back as possible from Passover, at least into the next month of Iyar, so as not to infringe on the prohibitions of mourning and eulogies in the month of Nisan. If the date could be deferred to the month of Iyar, and before Lagba Omer, it would fall within the Svirat HaOmer mourning period, which would make it less troublingly innovative to the... To, so, you don't know this, but um, from Passover to Shavuot, you count 50 days, that Omer period. Traditionally, at least the first 33 days, until the 33rd day, which is called Lagba Omer, is considered to be a time also. So after Nisan ends, and then up to Lagba Omer, Let's just say these traditions are in conflict with each other. <laughs> but for the Orthodox, doing it right before Lagba Omer would make sense. Lagba Omer is a festive day, and the day before would be a day of, 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 of fasting and mourning. It's just like Yom Kippur as a day of fasting precedes Sukkot, and just like the fast of Esther, which is a day of fasting and mourning, precedes Purim, and just like the fast of the firstborn on Passover, so there's this rhythm in Jewish life that there's sort of a vigil and a, 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 a kind of a, a fast day uh, prior to the festival day. So they were thinking in those terms. But um, as the party jockeyed back and forth, um, the labor Zionist establishment provided the swing vote that decided the outcome. They agreed with the Orthodox that Passover should be spared and they felt that Holocaust Commemoration Day should precede Israeli Independence Day, which occurs on the 5th of ER. The 5th of ER is a week from now. That happens to be the day that Israel declared independence. What was it on the secular calendar? May 5th, 1948? Right, but it's the fifth, well, in Israel, Israeli Independence Day is not on the secular calendar, it's on the Jewish calendar. And it fell on May 5th. So they didn't. So they debated whether to do Holocaust Remembrance Day, like right before Israeli Independence Day. They didn't want to do that. So it says here after uh, they agreed with the Orthodox that Passover should be spared, but they felt that Holocaust Commemoration Day should precede Israel Independence Day, which occurred on the fifth of ER. Sure. Finally, after much negotiating and sparring, the deal was struck. There were even rumors of job trading and other payoffs <laughs> to obtain the necessary agreement, although a number of key negotiators deny that story to this day. As close to Passover as possible turned out to be the 27th of Nisan. For the Orthodox, this was a breach of the unmitigated joyfulness of the month. Uh, for them, it was a violation. And the right-wing Orthodox to this day do not, the ultra-Orthodox do not mark Yom HaShoah. They also do not mark Israeli Independence Day. Now, as the ultra-Orthodox, all of this modern stuff, it's like, forget about it. Um, um, to this day, there have been abortive attempts to find an alternative date, even. Um, in, even in 1977, um, let's see, where did it say that? Uh, Menachem Begin proposed shifting it to Tisha B'Av. So, in other words, uh, something gets declared, it takes decades for it to see if it's actually going to take root. But the reason I'm telling you all this is, um, yeah, here's what he says. No one was satisfied with the outcome, but 
On April 12, 1951, the Knesset declared the 27th of Nisan as Yom uh, the day of the Holocaust and of Ghetto Revolt Remembrance Day. That was its original name because it was the ghetto fighters who were lobbying to have it on the anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Day. Um, and uh, then it eventually got renamed in 1953. Um, and um, let's see, what do I want to share with you here? The truth is that all through the 50s, the day was neglected. Not until 1959 did the Knesset legislate a national public commemoration of the day. And meanwhile, by the late 50s, David Ben-Gurion became convinced that he had erred in his treatment of the Holocaust. Too many Israelis had a sense of discomfort over the passivity of the victims, and too many citizens failed to understand the moral urgency of the state and why Jewish power was absolutely necessary. Uh, determined to educate the Israeli public, Ben-Gurion set in motion the capture and trial of Adolf Eichmann, 1961. The trial proved to be a stunning breakthrough in public understanding. The curtain of shame was lifted and the enormity of the Holocaust revealed. You know, the shame that survivors felt and the shame the Jews felt about having been, you know, there was so much shame added on to why we didn't fight back more or what. Or, or, um, and, and then, of course, there was survivor's guilt about why am I alive when everyone I knew is dead. The public, out of new empathy generated by the vivid testimony, grasped the heroism of daily life in the Holocaust. From the Eichmann trial on, the remarkable spread of Holocaust consciousness began. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Then, came the, mm -hmm. yeah. then came the Six-Day War in 1967, preceded by a rerun, is the word that um, Yitz Greenberg uses, of the Holocaust. Because if you remember, I think most of us are old enough to remember that uh, right before 67, Six Day War, most of us were sure that Israel was going to be exterminated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the threat of genocide seemed overwhelming. Except this time the Holocaust did not repeat. Instead, it was like Exodus again. Mm -hmm. Anal analysts have speculated that tri the triumphant resolution of the Six Day War overcame, in a way, the barrier erected by the tragic conclusion of the Holocaust. People had not been able to confront the story of the Holocaust because the ending was always so devastating, and now there was a reenactment that ended with a miraculous de deliverance. The psychological breakthrough cleared the way for a new rise in consciousness and an enormous expansion of observance of Yom HaShoah in Israel and America. It was like it was almost safe after the Six-Day War to start remembering publicly what happened. Uh, and it was also noteworthy that increasingly after that, it was only referred to as Yom HaShoah, meaning that the need to keep the word and the resistance in there now that we, now that we were triumphant. triumphant and strong, finally. So then it was okay. So you can only understand Israel. You can only understand Israel and its national identity in relationship to the Holocaust. There is if you don't remember that, you won't get Israel. If you go to Israel, you won't get it. For, for Israel, the Holocaust is in many ways their raison d'etre. And uh, if you want to understand why Netanyahu, who, among other things, you know, who I have a lot of negative opinions about, but who is the, who is the heir of 
revisionist Zionism. His father was a big shot in the revisionist Zionist. Um, and for whom the purpose of Israel is to protect Jewish lives. End of story. And, so, and he doesn't give a damn, as you can tell. Um, if he thinks the strategy is going to serve, now I don't necessarily agree with his strategy, we can go on and on, but yeah. you, understand, you can understand why he gets reelected, you can understand all that stuff. And if you don't, as many, 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 many people in the world don't, then they, they don't understand Israel. You mentioned 61 as sort of the mind, when, when people got the mind here about the Holocaust. Uh, with, with because Eichmann. of Eichmann. Eichmann. Wasn't the Nuremberg trials before Eichmann trials? Yes, they were in 45. Were 45, 46. 45, that, but that get, when did judgment in Nuremberg get made? The movie. Yeah. The I Nuremberg trials know. happened. No, 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 61, 62. Oh, wow. It's like... Oh, so you're saying it was post-Eichmann. Um, mm-hmm. All of that was... was it didn't hit the press, though, the Nuremberg 1961, press? Judgment at Nuremberg. Yeah. yeah. William Shatner's in it. I'm just... Spencer Tracy. There have so many good people in it. Uh, Judy, Garland. Judy Garland's in it. Okay, don't get us started. All right. <laughs> We're hopeless. We're hopeless. That's a great movie. Um, uh, I think my point is that the Nuremberg trials happened, but the, the Jewish public, the Jewish public consciousness wasn't able or ready to make any public kind of like... And Exodus was 1960. And the movie Exodus was 1960. Mm. We had to start mm. feeling like we could protect ourselves again before we could talk about what had happened. Mm. That's what I'm saying. No, I hear what you're saying. I, I actually have vivid the, you know, Eichmann behind this glass yeah. thing, and it was very... Um, it's an amazing story. Yeah. Uh, it was a calculated move by Ben-Gurion to get this, sto- to have a public trial mm. and to get this story in... In the, in the front of people's consciousness. Prior to that, in Israel, all through the 50s, it was like, they were, remember, they were just trying to survive, to build a country. What, what year was the Nuremberg trial? 45. 45. That was run by the Americans. But it was international. They were, it was international, that's right. And that's when the Nazi, a lot of the Nazi criminals were, uh, Nazi uh, leaders. Immediately after the war. Yeah, immediately after. Yeah. It's not that people had denied it had happened. It wasn't about denying it. It was like, how, this is about, we're talking about the origin of Yom HaShoah and, how, and when a people is ready to commemorate, to remember. Um, so uh, it's really only after the Six-Day War then, this progression that allows us to take this day and make it into a part of our public liturgical year, right? Even though it's not a religious holiday, per se, it's, it's part of the Jewish year. And it's the first, that and Yom Hatzma'ut are the first new Jewish holidays in 2,000 years. It's kind of remarkable wow. when you think about it. Now, there are some exceptions to that in the Middle Ages. Like, Tu B'Shvat is mentioned in the Talmud, but it becomes like a holiday in the late Middle Ages, right? But it's already a date that's on the calendar. The same can be said of Kabbalat Shabbat, uh, the, which is a whole new ceremony invented after in, in, in the 16, 1500s. But that too is already on the calendar. The expulsion from Spain, which was the, of equal 
was, was a huge cataclysm in 1492, actually took place on the 9th of Av. Uh, it took place on Tishabov. That was the date that Ferdinand and Isabella signed the decree. No, Pro- they, they signed the decree, but the effective date was. They signed the decree and they made the effective date the Tishabov, which was probably a calculated sure. move because they had plenty of conversos, plenty of Jews who had converted in their court who, uh, who we're sure could advise them about what the best day to make the most great. Make to, uh-huh. So anyway, but it's the first Jewish, new Jewish liturgical dates in 2,000 years. Were you going to say something? That was me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, how is uh, Yom HaShoah uh, observed in Israel today? Yes. Let me talk about that in a couple of minutes. Sure. Um, uh, hold on. Um, hold on, I, I lost my page here. Um, I find this so fascinating. Oh, there we go. Yes, let me talk about that, and then I'll get back to this point. So, what do you do with a day that has no uh, liturgy, no customs? No. So, we're in the process of watching uh, uh, tra- rituals and traditions emerge. Um, and the one that, the, the, the one that is... M- the centerpiece in Israel is that at 11 a.m., all the air sirens in the country go off for two minutes, and everyone who is participating, which is the vast majority of the people of Israel, um, stop what they're doing, pull their cars over, get out of their cars, leave their shops, leave their offices, go outside, and everyone stands in silence for... Um, I believe it's three minutes. Um, have you been there for that? No, but I've been I, there. I, I, was I watched. There. I was there for that. Yeah, it's very touching. I watched it's, it's the very powerful. A little video clip of what happens, and it's a highway, busy highway with another highway. Right. And stars, cars start pulling over to the side, and start pulling over to the side, and then the sirens go, and nobody moves, and everybody's out of the car. Yeah, very powerful. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Um, that also happens on Israeli Memorial Day, which is Yom Hazikaron, which is the day before Israeli Independence Day. So this is a this week. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so that was one thing that everybody does. Beyond that, it's very fluid um, because there is no central religious authority to establish a a, a liturgy for it. Um, it's not a religious holiday. Uh, in that sense, it's a. So the schools are open. Um, yes, schools are open. Mm. Yeah. Um, and what people have done over the last now twenty years or so is there have been attempts to write liturgies mm. for Yom Hashoah, and the most famous one was called the uh, Megillat Hashoah, the Scroll of the Shoah, the Holocaust, because. We have a Megillah in, in the, called Megillah Echa, which is the Scroll of Lamentations, which was composed after the destruction of the Temple and became part of the books of the Bible. And so 
how do you, would there be a way to write a piece of essentially contemporary scripture? Uh, and there have been a number of attempts at that. I was reading about that. Um, so what happens, so there are, what there are are commemorations, you know, and different people gather, different groups gather in different ways. I'm sure in Israel there's a lot on TV, you know, just like we have on, on important days here. Uh, but no, it's information. We, you know, and it's not clear. Uh, we're, it's too young. Right? It, it take, must take so long for n national commemorations to take shape that then feel like this is the way it is. And then, even then, they start to fall apart. I mean, look at our country where the July 4th and the Memorial Day that we grew up with are mere shadows of their former selves. And um, it's an interesting question. But it is on the calendar, Jay. Yeah, no, I was just thinking, if, if you look at Israel politics, through the eyes of the Holocaust. Yes. It's very understandable. Very understandable. Very understandable, whatever they want to do. And I think it's losing a certain, the Holocaust isn't getting the, 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 um, the branding it needs. It's, it's, it's not worldwide, I mean. I'm not talking about Israel and the cars stopping. I mean, it, it, you know, I think a better job has to be done in because you'll be more empathetic with it. looking at Israel's politics through the eyes of the Holocaust. It's a whole different, it's a whole it is, different it landscape. Is. And like anything else, there are incredible efforts in many parts of the world to memorialize the Holocaust in a way that stays in the public consciousness, uh, certainly in the U.S. and certainly in Germany. Um, and then you run into a problem, which is that it becomes an industry. Uh, it, everything's got its dark side, right? And so that one of the big critiques of American organized Judaism is that our is that it's not it's is that it's a religion of the Holocaust in Israel, and that we wrap our identities around the Holocaust in Israel as Jews, and yet what we're experiencing right now in 2016 is that that that. Um, um, uh, compact, that social compact is unraveling. Right. Um, we're 70 years out from the end of World War II and uh, we're watching as kind of the statute of limitations on uh, guilt uh, on, on, on it's all the, the survivors are dying. Right, right. I mean think about the next generation doesn't really want to my, my, um, the, the youngest uh, World War II veteran is 90 years old now. Um, what did you want to say? I was going to say what, just piggyback on the generations, you know, it's like the third generation is really the last generation for immigrants. That's right. Um, so it's, the time is, you know, it has to do with, that's, that's a time of everything. It's not just the Holocaust. No, that's right. Yeah. But it's, it is the time when, um, when memory becomes history, you could say. Yeah. Right, and they've right. also done that, that, that testing of, for trauma and how long it, they've tested three generations Generation. to see how long the trauma lives in the DNA of um, uh, descendants of... What's the, what's the general uh, results of those tests? Well, they found 
I think they have a t I don't know if they've tested past three generations. I don't know exactly what they're testing because I'm not a scientist. Maybe Anne knows something about that. But basically, trauma is living in DNA of descendants of trauma um, survivors. Okay. Right. So, and I think they've tested through, through three generations to see that the, 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 the DNA still shows signs of trauma, but I don't know if they've tested beyond that. Be interesting with slavery also. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nicole? Well, I just want to um, comment on what you said about that if you look at Israel through the eyes of the Holocaust, right. it makes more sense. But then there's a flip side that many people believe that because we went through the Holocaust, we're held to a higher standard. So there's, um, there's that also. Uh, right. Um, and, but if you want, if, yeah. And there's that element of society in, in Israel too. Absolutely. And what did you want to say? I um, think it's important to note, notice here that I've been reading and hearing that there's a very, very dangerous rise in anti-Semitism in Europe mm -hmm. and the United States. Um, I'm connected to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Southern Poverty Law Center, yes. Morris, I, I, Morris get, I give them donations every year, yeah. Yeah, and um, it's, um, it's a happening thing, and I don't hear, um, I mean, I don't hear about it talking on the social media. They're not interested. Oh, it depends which sites you go to. It depends which sites you, you, you visit, but yeah. I the guess. first, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm only saying that uh, it's, it's, the, it's happening. That's all. Right. right, it's not in the daily news. That's right. The uh, Ellen, I'll get you in a sec. The, uh, this is a big discussion. The way I've said it in recent years, it seems like the statute of limitations on not showing your anti-Semitism since the Holocaust is running out. Is running, running, running right. out. Would you say that? Again, that after the Holocaust, there was so much moral revulsion that it became unacceptable in most circles to be out with your anti-Semitic stuff. You had to keep, it got pushed to the margins and underground. Because it's like we had a, after, after it was almost like after the bender of the Holocaust, uh, uh, the world cut us some slack for a while. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, it really didn't. Uh -huh. I don't think it really did. I think it did. Yeah. I, think, I, I think it did. Um, I, I think, I mean, it's all relative, but um, uh, it really, um, when you look at what was okay to say about Jews in the 30s right. mm -hmm. and the 40s. Well, in public. I'm talking about public. That's all I'm talking about. Oh no, anti-Semitism, just like racism and sexism, they don't go away. That's what I'm talking about, keeping a lid on it. Do you make it socially acceptable discourse or socially unacceptable discourse? That's what I'm talking about. It doesn't go away. Um, and what, I'm, what, I'm, what I see in the, in the way it's popping up everywhere is that, you know, our, that time is up. The 70 years is over and it's like you had your chance and it starts crawling out from under the rock again. Which also has to do with the generations, because people, they don't know. 
That's right. They live through it. It isn't taught. They don't know. So the people now um, who are, you know, yeah. Well, it's even, more, it, it's even more than that. And again, this is really just headlines. Anti-Zionism right. is anti-Semitism. Right. Either you're against all nationalisms <laughs> or none. Because right. every single nationalism has its own abomination. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Anti-Zionism as some unique form of uh, ideology that doesn't take to task every national identity in the world is anti-Semitism. And what's happened in the amazingly, just like having studied about the new Jim Crow, in the amazing way that racist ideologies can reconfigure themselves mm -hmm. to come up with vocabulary that codes the language for whatever the current needs are. Anti-Semitism is just like that. Right. What was a religious conviction becomes a racial conviction under the Nazis, becomes a nationalist mm -hmm. conviction on, in the new era. And we're in, you know, I'm in, I'm in such a bind, and I'm not saying that like me alone, I'm in such a bind as a passionate supporter of Zionism and as a passionate supporter of liberal democracy. Because I criticize the state of Israel. I don't vote for Netanyahu, right? So is that making you anti-Semitic? I'm not anti-Zionist. Do you see the bind I'm in? I'm a supporter of Zionism, but Zionism has been successfully morphed by the forces of anti-Semitism into a dirty word. I've said this before. My daughter, who's going to live in Israel, will not call herself a Zionist. Because in, among her friends, it's a dirty word. That's anti-Semitism at work, turning our national liberation movement into an epithet. It goes back to what you said about... Hold on, did you follow what I'm saying? Absolutely. Um, so I am not the least bit confused about this, but it puts people who are Zionists in a real bind because our movement is being turned into a dirty word. Right? Um, and I actually have to watch the way I talk about it with younger people. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's, it's incredible. So what were you going to say, Jay? Well, it, it, it goes back to what you said 20 minutes ago about the linkage between, um, between the Holocaust and, and uh, Israel. Right. That they're linked. So, so if, if you, as I said before, if you look at, the, at Israel through the eyes of the Holocaust, you, you, you could understand it. But the flip side of that is that those who want to destroy Israel will deny the Holocaust. That's right. That's the, that's, that's how... The or they'll, and or they'll compare the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians right. to, to the Holocaust. The Holocaust. Okay. Did you... Okay. Yes, Ellen, you've been waiting to say something. So, Sorry. I got comments on the same news story from both sides on my Facebook feed this morning. An Israeli general said, I love my country and... I see, from my position as military intelligence and everything else, I see some actions of my government as being similar in effect to what the Nazis did. So of course, my Carolyn Glick and my right-wing teacher who's going back to Israel to live after living, coming back to the United States for 20 right. years, he should be removed from office, he should be cashiered, he should be tried for treason, 
and and my friend who lives on Kibbutz Latan and a couple other people were, go general, you're right. Right. This is now, what's going on in Israel and in the hearts and minds of Jews and in the hearts and minds of anybody who has any sense of history and what's right. Right. So, and we have to keep in mind that for internal consumption among the Jewish people, this is acceptable discourse. Yeah. But then when it gets out there, it becomes fodder for every anti-Semite yeah. that's out there. So it's, of course we're going to, of course an Israeli is going to use their own reference points of how we were mistreated, you know. Well, maybe that has to move on. Oh, right. The problem is, is that the landscape of anti-Semitism is so volatile right now that that stuff just gets sucked up into the blogosphere and no, I'm saying it's a problem. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I'm not saying keep our mouths shut. I'm saying we have this problem, which is that it gets sucked up into a blogosphere of what is this, in effect, anti-Semitic rhetoric. Uh, and so we're in really, an, it's really, it's really a problem. Uh, yeah. I, I just want to say something that happened to me yesterday because I don't know how it's related, but it was, I don't think I responded very well. I was in the laundry room. I think there are, before Robert moved in, I think there were two Jews living in my complex. And a woman says to me the other day, oh, you're Renee's friend. She's Jewish. And I said to myself, I said, oh, this woman thinks that I'm her friend. And I said, well, we're acquainted. That was all I said. Instead of saying, well, you mean because I'm Jewish and she's Jewish? Right. I didn't, I didn't even think of saying it then. Now I would think of saying it, but would I have the guts to? There's something in there that's related to all this, but I yeah. don't know how to relate it. Maybe uh, it's because it's all a continuum. In other words, for for the Holocaust to have happened, there had to be the ground had to be fertile, fertile, and it's all a continuum, just like racism, just like homophobia, just like sexism. They're all bubbling there underneath, and people, sh you know, Carol. I don't know what I should have done. What you should have done? Well, it'd be cool if you were feeling really sassy. Yeah. <laughs> is good. But then you have to live with this person for but the rest you're of. You're going to get the repercussions. Right. Then you have to live with this person. Right, right, so right. I don't know. I'd be very circumspect myself. <laughs> but but well, what made you think that she was right. saying you're friends with Renee because she's right. Jewish? She might just. Be... But she could have said I was friends with any number of other people oh, who I even know better. All right, but she related that. You might be, you were friendly with her because I, you that was she's got her she's got her she's got her Jew radar out yeah no 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 uh, Carol go ahead go ahead I just Carol uh, let me just say the fact that we can sit here and have a civil conversation about all this and not try to make each other wrong is part of what I love about this congregation that's what happened to Perry but Blaze that's fine that's fine yeah I just want to say that one of the first things that Donald Trump said was, we're bringing, we can say Merry Christmas now. Right, Which it's Which sounds code. like, you know, it sounds like, oh, isn't that nice? It's coded language. Terrifying. He's got the, yeah. One of the first things out of his mouth. Right, it's all good coded so language. Helen, uh, and then I want to say, go ahead. That, yeah. my, I, I know someone who is uh, Chinese, and... She was always insulted when people would ask her for recommendations <laughs> for Chinese <laughs> restaurants. In the workplace. Oh, oh. In other words, so. other office workers would ask her. 
for a recommendation for a restaurant in Chinatown. She said, I, I can't. I, I never went to. I don't have any restaurants in Chinatown. But you she know, is I don't. But she. Well, she but the point. It. No, no, no. So the, we're. The point here is that it's a it's mind. a very very big it's continuum, and the personal and and part of what we need to acknowledge here is that nobody is objective and rational about this. Nobody, because we're the personal is so political. We're talking about that was two thirds of my family, uh, you know, uh, that got killed that I never met. It's my, like my it's, grandpa's the only one left. It's of all 70. so it's all personal, and we're touchy. So. The, 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 the trick is to become as self-aware enough right. to know when we're being touchy so that we can explore our touchiness without saying also that everything's okay, which it's not. But, but the other person has to be more self-aware too. All we can do is, sorry Helen, 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 there's, but Helen, there's nothing we can do about other people. Well, you've got to think before you speak. Right, right, but all I'm, but Helen, the only mouth I'm in charge of is mine. That's the point. So here's what I want, we're almost out of time, but here's what I wanted to share. So two things. First of all, I think the state of Israel was uh, um, approved by the UN as a sympathy vote. Oh, right. In other words, had it not been for the Holocaust, yeah. that doesn't mean the Holocaust is responsible for. I'm just saying it's all mixed up together, um, and uh, there's just no way around it. And I'm saying that 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 hiatus of goodwill is almost exhausted. Mm -hmm. yes. Just like the Civil yes. Rights Bill was a sympathy bill because it was Kennedy's bill. Yes. And they got, Johnson got it through because Kennedy was killed. Yes. That's right. That's right. It was in the, it was in the rebound right. from that. And often after a tragedy, a law gets passed or, a, you know, and um, I think that's part of the reality of what's going on here. Right. The, the other thing I wanted to share, though, is that um, Yitz has this great line. Um, in that horse trading and back and forth, and the 27th of Nissan gets chosen, and it's like, and that's Yom HaShoah, and it's not, it's in between where the ghetto fighters wanted, which was before Passover, and where the Orthodox wanted, which was after Nissan, and it's like total compromise, you know, camel made by a committee, you know, right. and, a horse. and it's one week before Israeli Independence Day, which is perfect, right? There's something about the way it all landed, and the way he said it is that um, it could not have been better orchestrated by Providence <laughs> than it was. Otherwise, Providence. Uh, hmm? Providence. You know, by the, by the, yeah, no. it's like, how did that happen? And there's something, but then again, uh, when, so, I find that to be remarkable, that in the seven decades, six and a half decades since the war and the, and the state of Israel, our collective something focused in Israel, right? Israel's the locus of this. We've jumped on that bandwagon uh, by marking these days. Some Jews don't mark these days, but we're, we have, so we're, but out of Israel is created a, a new liturgical cycle that is the classic liturgical cycle of sorrow leading to joy. A fast day 
leading to a celebration. A, and that's the rhythm that this has taken on wow. in Jewish life and especially in Israel. Um, and I find that to be sort of like, I guess if there's a collective consciousness at work, you know, shaping how we experience time and how we choose to market, then it came out in a way that makes emotional sense. Yeah. Do, that, do you follow what I'm right. saying? Yeah. And that's one of the things I wanted to share because I thought it was such a great story about all how it became this day and then when you look at it and you step it back, so it's perfect. just where it should be. Although, it, it, but nobody raised that as, as, as the reason. Right. It just happened. Right. Well, a lot of stuff happens that way. I, I find that, oh, yeah. yeah, so... It uh, does, it's the rhythm. There's a rhythm that maybe we're not... Well, there was some comment in here that they didn't want it to be after Israeli Independence right. Day, so that it, became a kind of a, went, an but, outer boundary. Right. Uh, and the, but that it sort of worked its way right to there. Right. So we can learn so much from retrospect. It's all in retrospect that we know this. So what That's do right. we know now in this moment of time? And how can I act accordingly? Yeah. I just... No, oh, say that again. Can we have a class on that? Say, say that again. <laughs> just that, just what you... What, what do we know at this point in time? Yeah, and what can, I, what do I we know do? a lot from retrospect. Mm -hmm. So what do we what know do now? I know at this point of time and that I want to take action in right now? Yes. Oh, boy. That, that's right. That's the next question. Like, having t done all this talking. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the landscape is changing daily, too. Absolutely. And there's fear, and there's excitement, and there's change. That's right. That's what I wanted to share with you. In that, in that um, post-Holocaust paradigm that shaped so much of Israel, um, when the Oslo Accords were signed in, 1990, were signed in 1993, Peres... Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Rabin made the statement that it's time for us to stop living in the past and live in the present. Not everyone we meet is our enemy. They said that publicly. Uh, and um, that's why we're signing this. Uh, yeah, and I thought, wow, they are breaking out of the cycle of traumatic thinking, right? And then, of course, it's now 20 years since Rabin's assassination, it got consumed, right? That doesn't mean that the Arabs are our friends. It doesn't mean that the Palestinians want us to be there. It doesn't mean, it means in the present moment, not everyone is against us, right? That was true in, even in the Holocaust, right? That's why at Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial, they have this whole forest of trees planted for righteous Gentiles. Uh, so that you walk through and you read all the plaques of people who saved Jews during the Holocaust. It's like, it's such a brilliant thing there. And um, uh, so my goal, so now we're talking, you said what action to take. My goal is to try not to be um, compulsively driven by trauma without ignoring what happened in the past. You know, that's my goal for what it means to live a, a, a responsible life in the present. Not to be Pollyannish, but also not to be completely consumed by dread. Um, so I'm responding to what you said. That's sort of like my, my rule. That's what I'm trying to follow. This takes a lot of discernment in 
order to yes. do that. Yeah, a lot of self-awareness too. You got to watch in your body when when you're getting triggered. When you're getting triggered, when you're like, and then stop and look around and say, okay, what's real here? What's a and you have to read history, in my opinion. You you, you can't be stupid. Um, so all of that. Those who do not it's, it's, remember history are condemned it's, to repeat it. it. Yeah. It's challenging to be a human being. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. My Thanks. Grand, my grandson is listening to some tapes called, I think it's called The History of the World for the Classical Child. And apparently they're just wonderful. And it goes from the Fertile Crescent up to, I don't know where, maybe up to World War II. And it's really an amazing, I want to just get it for myself to see what he's learning. That's so cool. And to see what, because he's not, I mean, they're not teaching this in school, but he learns through listening. That's great. I, that's wonderful. And it seems like a wonderful series of, you know, I mean, my daughter and, is very and, and I love, uh, my, my Nomi is in 10th grade, her social studies teacher, uh, he's not teaching them um, history sequentially. He's teaching them by sort of topic or era so he wants them to be able to think critically about the facts that they he says you can learn the facts in college the sort of like timelines I want you to know what this is and what I think it's really cool especially when I read her papers bless bless her heart so by the way so tonight is the Yom HaShoah program at 630 which, if you'd like to come to, is actually uh, um, got some powerful stuff in it. How do you commemorate? How does your congregation... Um, we do it in conjunction with the Ulster County right. Jewish Federation, and we're the host this year. Our, but the program has been organized by mm, mm, the Federation formally, but everyone who's organizing it's a member of the synagogue. And they... I got... I. I have it on the program on my email. Um, Len Chodesh, who was born in a DP camp, is, has written a story about his father. They're focusing on second generation, since the survivors are mostly gone now. Um, and I think Charlotte Shearer, who is also, was Charlotte born in a DP camp and is a member, she's going to be participating. And Ars Corrales is coming, some 10 of their singers to sing a song. And... And we're going to say the Kaddish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Zoe's going to come oh. and participate. Zoe's at. Thank you so much for letting me explore all this with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to everybody. The play, by the way, that my grandson.